When I first interviewed Sam Penyanovich in 2014, he was just getting started in sports radio in Chicago. Now he's working in TV in New England. This is from the live stream that we did earlier this summer. I did interview you some years ago, many years ago, when you were pretty much starting out, I'd say, and you have become more successful and it's not gone to your head. I'm very impressed. Like you answer my, you answer my messages on Twitter, et cetera. So that's pretty cool. You can call me a TV person if you choose, but at heart, I am forever a radio producer that had to cut highlights for the Cubs and Blackhawks. When the Cubs lost a hundred games in 2012, uh, Blackhawks finally got good, won some Stanley Cups. But I, uh, I always have time for my friends. You know that. And we Thank go you. way back. We go back like nine years ago when you used to find me hiding in the in Orion Samuelson's booth, like trying to catch a nap on the overnight shift. Yeah. And also you gave me a hard time because I used to go into the newsroom at WGN radio and I used to look at the schedule. I have no idea why, maybe because I wanted to catch certain people at a certain time to ask them to be on my podcast. I don't know what it was, but yeah, you're pointing that out. And then, um, yeah, I feel like I knew you in the early years because when did you start in media? 2011 was when I got hired by Metro networks at the time. They're like, Hey, we need somebody. We need somebody that won't need money. And I was like, well, that's perfect right here. I don't need any money. Why would I need money? They go, we need you to go to Wrigley and Sox Park and interview the visiting coaches and players. Would you like to do that? I said, hell yeah, I would. Of course, of course. I would. Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of the internships that, that unfortunately existed at that time, you'd go get somebody's lunch or you screen phone calls or you do both and then just sit there and twiddle your thumbs. This internship was going to baseball games and interviewing players. Now at the time, I was super terrified because I'm 21, 22 years old, you know, standing in a clubhouse, like shaking, um, never asked questions in that first season, but just to get comfortable being around a locker room. It's like, it, it's, you can't exactly teach that. You can't practice, you know, you can practice your air checks. You could sit in the, uh, in the office or the studio and, and do a podcast, or you could do a television reel, but you can't replicate being in a major league baseball clubhouse. Like that's something that, it doesn't just it doesn't just happen. So I take that experience and then just roll that over. And I think you and I discussed this before. I think I interned about five times um, for nothing, which, you know, now the, we you mean at, the, at WGN radio. No, it was different. It was WLS. It was Metro Networks. It was uh, Illinois Radio Network, then WGN a couple of times. Uh, so four places, six internships. Uh, but I think the the big lesson from that is that you know, working and proving that you could be around is the most important skill in media because so many people now, you know, they're 22, 23. Like I get messages on LinkedIn all the time. Like, Hey, could you give me a job? Like that's wow. the, that's the wow. hook. That's the intro. Like, Hey, love your stuff at Nesson. Could you help me get a job? Question mark. And wow. I, I think to myself, like, how do we get from 10 to 90 miles an hour? Like, I don't that's even right. know you. Yeah. Can you just say, first of all, explain what is Nessum? So Nessum is the New England Sports Network, and we are the uh, regional network run by the Boston Red Sox and the Boston Bruins. And we wow. cover this region up here. I'm going to try this without notes. Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island. Ding, 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 ding. Um, and we are the source for New England sports, you know, like NBC Sports Chicago, uh, covers that whole market. You have all these different networks across the country. This is not a national network. It's a regional network, but we are every Red Sox game minus about 20 or 30. And we are every Bruins game minus about 10, 15, depending on if the big networks come in 
and uh, and absorb those games. So we are all Red Sox. We are all Bruins. And uh, apparently now we are doing sports betting because we have a daily show on uh, on sports betting Monday through Friday, which to me is insane. We couldn't talk sports betting. I remember being on GN about, I don't know, seven years ago and, and giving the point spreads and the totals. And I remember one of the bosses was like, hey, you know, we don't talk betting on the air. And now everybody wants to know who somebody likes for a certain game. So it has certainly come full circle. Um, I mean, Paspa was struck down in May of 2018. So since that day in May of 2018, we are now live in 30 plus states across the country, live in Illinois. Do you gamble yet? Have we hooked you up yet? No, um, I, no? I know what else. I don't even play games because I, it would not be good for me. You're, but, gonna, um, you're probably going to hate this. I think I'm going to make a bet on the Chicago bears to have the worst record in the NFL. Oh, okay. I thought you, th- I thought you meant they're going to go <laughs> a different no, kind of bet. <laughs> I'm going the other way. I'm going to the bottom. You can do right. this now. It's like 15 to one that they have the worst record in the NFL. It probably won't happen. And the numbers say that at 15 to one, but you know, a $10 bet wins you 150. So if there are any Packer fans listening to this, yeah, I mean, $10 wins 150. That's the way you bet. You bet a little to win a lot. You don't bet a lot to win a little. Right. And then also, um, I remember I, this one semester, I taught this uh, podcast in class at Columbia and one of my students is totally into betting. And he met you in like Las Vegas or something. And oh, is this I, Z? Yes, yes. Yes. And so I said, hey, text him right now. Like usually a teacher doesn't tell people to text. I text him right now and tell him that you're in my class. And he's like, okay. And he, I think he did. So it was funny. It's and a he's small getting world. hooked up now. Well, he's, I mean, he did the right thing though. Like yeah. he came in on the ground floor and he asked the right questions and he sent me some tapes. And of course, you know, having a, a mutual friend, always helps. And and I always look out for people because I remember being in college and like at that time, you know, we had to like email people because Twitter wasn't really that big of a thing. You had to get somebody's email and then say a Hail Mary, cross your fingers, cross your toes, that they would see the email and then respond to the email. But now I think that that personal connection where, you know, you can introduce me to somebody or I can introduce somebody to you and then make that introduction. It's super helpful, but He's a good kid, but he, you know, he had his, he had his head on straight. Yeah. He, he had questions to ask. He didn't have, you know, objectives. He didn't have favors to ask. He had questions to ask. And I think it's important when you're that age and you're still in college to ask the right questions. Like if you can, you know, borrow somebody's time for 30 minutes or an hour, like make the most of it. Don't, don't just ask for jobs and ask for favors because that's going to get you nowhere real fast. Why do you think people do it that way? I don't know. I think I think society has certainly changed. I think nobody really wants to do the hard work. Nobody certainly wants to work free. But um, if I didn't have those internships, like I wouldn't be here. You know, like I've always looked at life as sort of a like we're building a big stew, if that makes any sense. And it takes decades to cook, but you have to throw different ingredients in along the way. And, and the friendships you make and the relationships you build they all go into that stew. You know, people that I met at 19 might be able to help me at 23. Who could help me at 27? I moved to Vegas and work at VEASAN. And, and the guy that I initially worked for there tells me, hey, I'm going to bring you to Boston when he leaves VEASAN for Nesson. And I'm like, yeah, all right. Yeah, you'll bring me to Boston. All right. And he brought me here. He's like, he's the reason oh. I'm here. So, so that networking is everything. But I feel like the initial step or the initial hop, skip, and jump 
people don't want to skip to that first stone. They want to skip to the fifth or sixth stone. And that's, that's just doing it wrong, at least in sports media. Like, I don't know what it's like in accounting or finance or, or things like that or marketing, but I know in media, it's about paying your dues and it's about meeting people, remembering people and, and taking that network that you've built and, and utilizing it. Yeah, this is similar to what you said years ago. It's like you haven't changed because I mean, in a good way, because I remember you talking about, you know, paying your dues and everything. And at that point, it was still early. It was only a few years when you were in the business. But yeah, I think with, you know, counting also, there are more jobs and so forth. But in media, yes, I have noticed that. But everybody wants to work in sports media, it seems. So like, for instance, my former student, but he did do it right because he had his own podcast. He went to Las Vegas. He networked, et cetera, et cetera. But what is some advice, specific advice that you have for sport? People want to go to sports media. Sports media is, you know, it's ever changing. You know, I think the days of reading the sports pages, as much as many of my colleagues would hate for me to say this, I think the days of us getting the paper on our doorstep and flipping to the sports section, I think that's, that's going to be out of commission pretty soon. You know, I, I like reading the paper, but how many people under the age of 30 read the newspaper? So it, it's going to a digital social, uh, social, excuse me, type play where it's about traffic and clicks and really the, the balance of content with the social existence. Like that's where it's all at. I mean, people get discovered by going viral on the internet. And that's not to say that that's an easy path, but I know people at several networks who have been discovered by just being active and being around on social media. And, you know, you know, back in the day, you know, 20, 30 years ago, we had to either turn on the 10 o'clock news or 11 o'clock news and see what happened in the game or read the paper the following morning. But now I mean, we could track these games on our phone. So right. I don't need to know that, oh, so-and-so just got a base hit or so-and-so just hit a home run. It's, it's become more of a reactionary type field. Like, okay, yes, that happened, but how do you react to it? What do you think of this big moment? So sports have become less about the news and more about reacting to the news. So what I've been sort of telling, you know, younger sports hopefuls is that, you know, you need to have a blog. Yeah. You need to have some sort of a, an outlet to react to said stories. Like the White Sox are, are a train wreck right now. <laughs> Rather than tell me the White Sox are a train wreck, Tell me why they're a train wreck or how it makes you feel as a lifelong White Sox fan that you have to root for a team that can't get out of its own way. You know, we don't we don't need the obvious anymore. We want the second and third layer. And that's how sports media has really transformed since I started in the early 2010s to where we're at now. It's it's reactionary. We don't want to know what happened on the field. We want to know your reaction to what mm -hmm. happened on the field. And that's how it's really changed. So what, what are you, I mean, do you ever talk to people who started out a long time ago and what, what's their reaction to what you're saying, these kinds of changes? Well, they see it coming. Trust me. I mean, several guys that covered, you know, baseball and basketball and football for 20, 30 years, they're like, Hey, the paper jobs are lessening. And I don't need to tell you the newspaper used to be like that. And now the newspaper is, is like that. So the jobs have really, you know, there used to be, I remember going to my first bears game as a reporter in I don't know, 2012, 2013, and the Sun-Times had four people in the press box. And now the Sun-Times has two people in the press box. And 10 years from now, they might have one person in the press box. So I don't think it's really what they, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to say I don't care what they think, but I, I see the changes. We all see the changes. The papers are smaller. The staffs are lower. The buyouts are higher. You know, I mean, look what happened to the Tribune. 
Um, you know, that was, you know, the paper of all papers in the Midwest. And, and now it's, it's just, it's sad to see. So I, I don't know, you know, I don't have a solution to that. I hope you don't ask me how to fix newspapers because I wasn't prepared for that question. But, you know, it's less about the work, um, like the linear progression of covering an event. It's, it's just come so far out from what it was. And, you know, I'm telling you, like podcasting is such a thing though. Like I'm amazed. Yeah, I work at a TV station and I'm amazed at how many people come in and work and go, I listen to podcasts and podcasts only, Wow. you know, forget FM radio, AM radio. It's I'm listening to podcasts or I have Apple music or I have Spotify because we're now in this world. And even this goes to TV too, like TV. Now, how many cord cutters do you know? Well, I don't want cable because I can pay for Netflix and Apple TV and ESPN plus. It's almost like an a la carte type world where we consume what we want when we want. And that's like podcasting is the hottest thing. And this is, of course, a podcast, but podcasting is is the thing right now. And there's a lot of money going around um, for the right podcast. So that's sort of the way I see it. You know, how can you reach users where they want to be reached? And and that's really how you sustain an audience now by getting them to a device that they're already going to, as opposed to something that they had to wait for, because we don't, we don't have to wait for anything anymore. We get, I mean, we order food now it's here in 30 minutes from somebody we don't even know. It's a, it's a, what we want world and we want it now. But for podcasting, um, they're like millions of podcasts. Cause when I interviewed you a long time ago, there weren't a lot of podcasts or there, there weren't a lot of decent ones. Now there are. So how do people get noticed in the podcast world? Yeah, it's a very good question. I I think the proper usage of social media, I know, look, I I can't touch on the importance of TikTok. I don't don't even know what a TikTok is still, um, unfortunately. But the way that people are able to use websites or apps like Instagram and TikTok, and I know Snapchat is pretty big, like there's a way to bolster an audience big time if you can navigate the social media space. I mean, you're right. Like if somebody looking to start a Chicago Bears podcast wants to start the 500 Chicago Bears podcast, there may not be um, much room to absorb other listeners. But if you break down like Chicago Bear quarterbacks, that's your podcast, like Bear Down the Quarterback podcast, or, you know, uh, talk about the, uh, the, the Chicago Cubs offense or something like that, like focusing and centralizing on something. I think it's still a specialty type place where if you want to do like, I think the big mistake that people make is, all right, I'm going to do a podcast on football. There's a million podcasts on football, but how many podcasts are there on the Illini football team or the Notre Dame football team, or, you know, this conference or this state, you know, I I did a high school football podcast that used to somehow do numbers um, because guess how many other high school football podcasts there were in Illinois, there were none. So sort of filling a need for something that people are talking about or wondering about, uh, is sometimes half the battle. You don't want to be the hundredth person in the same line. You want to be the first person in a new line. Um, and that's, you know, I think that works in this new media landscape where we want something different. We want something new, but we want something unique. Well, I mean, do you think that listeners are looking for such niche podcasts? I think they are. Yeah. You don't No, I do because I teach this. I mean, I always say to the students, okay, you want to do X, do some research and see if other people are doing it. And then they'll find it. Yes. Especially with sports. Like they'll say, I want to do something else about sports. I'm like, well, you're competing against the big sports places. So I do think niche helps. And especially if you do a niche audio plus have a blog, then do, you know, do it multimedia like written and, 
and audio and video. If you put it all together, it'll help. Yes. I think the more versatile you are, it certainly helps. I mean, every day now at work, um, I write podcast, do videos, do live television, um, you know, take the garbage out. No, I don't, I don't do the last part anymore. But uh, the fact that, you know, you can't just do one thing. And I think that's really cool, too. Like, I know a lot of people that go to games and they get to the game. And the first thing they do is they do like a, you know, a live stream on the phone. Like, hey, here I am on the field. And it's here's here's what's going on. Here's who's injured. Here are the biggest stories of the game. Follow my Twitter for more information. And then when the game starts, you're getting, you know, facts and opinions from the Twitter. Maybe there's a live blog at halftime. You, you tweet again in the second half, third, fourth quarter of a football game. And then when the game is over, you're either doing a podcast from the field or you're writing a story from the field. So you're getting so many different avenues. It's not just, you know, filing. A, I don't know, back in the day, it was, all right, let's file two 60-second wraps or three 30-second wraps and go home, send the sound in, call it a day, we'll see you tomorrow. But now it's the person who's there early and the person who's interacting with his or her audience throughout the game and then doing more content after the game. That's the person you want to follow because they're giving you the most to snack on. And the more snacks in the snack aisle, it's probably more likely I'm going to leave with something that makes any sense. Yeah. And it, that is real journalism right there when you're doing reporting like that. And then the analysis can come later. But when people are live reporting and showing pictures and showing video and so forth and giving the stats, that's really powerful. You know, OK, we were talking about the going to locker rooms. What is it like to be in a sports locker room, a pro sports <laughs> locker room? Depends on the locker room. I mean, if it's the right locker room, it's one of the best places in the world. Like some of those Blackhawk locker rooms. I was actually telling the story the other day. You know, covering that team from about 2012 to 2017, they won two Stanley Cups, but just the characters in that room. And it helps when you win and they won a lot. Um, but to have guys like Jonathan Taves, Patrick Kane, Marion Hossa, Duncan Keith, Brent Seabrook, Nick Jalmerson, Corey Crawford, you know, Joel Quenville was a very, uh, at the time, a very successful head coach in the league. And of course, some things have come out after the fact, but that was a group at the time that it was always fun to go to work. And it was always fun to be around those guys because they respected one another. They respected the media and they were damn good. Uh, I was in a lot of bad locker rooms like the uh, I don't know if I told you this story last time. No, I, I couldn't have because I would have been in the moment at the time. The, the Chicago Bears locker room with Jake Cutler was a nightmare because he just didn't care about anything. He didn't care about his receivers, his offensive line, his fiance, his coach. Like he cared about nothing. What do you mean he but didn't J care? Did he, did he say that or? He was just so disconnected from everybody and everything. And he just, he was so like, I just don't give a damn. Like all I wanted, he had that vibe of, I just want to smoke a cigarette by myself. Hmm. And, and that was the guy that, you know, in that locker room that was supposed to be the piece that carried them to a Super Bowl. But you had a lot of people in that locker room, you know, Brandon Marshall, Martellus Bennett, uh, you know, they used to, conflict with with Jay Cutler who didn't care and then the coach couldn't control the locker room so I mean every locker room is different because the characters inside said locker rooms are different I've been in some good ones I've been in some really bad ones that Bulls locker room too uh like with Joaquin Noah Luol Dang Derek Rose those were some really good locker rooms to be around with the locker rooms that are really good is it because they're a winning team or what is it I mean I was around a couple cub locker rooms like when they first called up Anthony Rizzo in about 2012 they weren't winning but you could tell that this kid at 22 23 years old was the real deal 
And he was a guy who was going to be a captain-like figure. You knew at 22, 23, he had the soul of a 33-year-old. And you knew he was a leader. And you could see that. And at that time, I'm 25. And I'm like, wow, this guy carries himself better than, than almost anybody in this locker room. And he's one of the youngest players on the team. So I think locker rooms, they change and they mold over time. But that 12 Cub team that I believe lost 101 games, you saw the beginning branches of what could be. And then a couple of years later, they bring up Javi Baez. And then the year after that, they bring up Chris Bryant. They bring up uh, Kyle Schwarber and they bring up Wilson Contreras. And it was like, you could see all of these ingredients coming together. And then that locker room, I mean, that was one of my favorite things to watch from a distance, like take year by year out of it, watching it from 2012 to 2016 when they win the world series and break the curse they just kept adding the right chemistry and of course bringing joe madden aboard certainly helped he was the right manager at the right time for a team that was just so young and hungry and determined and once those young players started to show what they were worth that was when the cubs said all right we're going to start spending money on the john lesters and the jason haywards and the ben zobris and the john lackeys it was almost like they had the freshmen in high school, and once the freshmen materialized into seniors, they went out and got other seniors from other cities and built, like, this super team. And it was just – it was the right mix at the right time. And that 16 Cub team, I mean, they they knew they were good. Yeah. But they they backed it up, too. And that was a very fun – and Madden kept things fresh. I mean, they they had a five-game losing streak one, one week in June or July, and he brought in, like, 30 Flamingos to Wrigley. And it was just like, why are there flamingos here? Just to take the edge off and to keep them. He was doing all kind of wacky stuff, but it worked for that team at that time. And I, you know, the locker room is a very, it's a very finicky space if it's not put together the right way. And there were some bad locker rooms. Like when the White Sox brought uh, Adam LaRoche in and gave his 12 year old son a locker in the locker room. Wait, why? why oh, I, have, I have no idea that that was the team that completely combusted. The team wanted to fight each other. Chris sale was cutting uniforms up. That was a weird, weird year, 2016 white Sox. But uh, yeah, that was the year that uh, Adam LaRoche's kid had his own locker in a locker room full of grown men. Wow. Yeah. So I, then also they couldn't joke around with each other in a certain way. If you know what I mean, they couldn't do the locker room thing. That's what I mean. No, of course not. <laughs> But, I mean, do you think that if there is a lame locker room, do you think that the manager can sort of change the vibe of it? Or, or is he just totally out of it at that point? It's a very good question. I, I think it, it depends on how far along they are. Where, when you were here, were you a White Sox fan or a Cubs fan? Oh, yeah. I grew up big White Sox fan, Southeast side. Yeah, 113th and Ewing is where uh, I grew up, at least for the first eight, nine years of my life. So, yeah, I only saw the city one way. I used to, when they would show the, the city from Wrigley, yeah. like a game on WGN TV. Yeah. I'm like, the city doesn't look like that. Right, exactly. Because they're yeah. showing it from a different direction. And right. you, had to, you had to learn that, oh, yeah, you have to give those guys their uh, their day in court as well. But, yeah, huge White Sox fan. And and honestly, like of all the teams that I you know, grew up rooting for and then had to cover as a reporter, that's the only team I still ride for. Art. It's the only one that I, like, get upset about when they don't play well. So at least you spent the early part of your life there. Well, eight to nine was on the south side in our home, but then you'd hang out with the kids you grew up with. Like when I would hang out, we would go back to the southeast side until I was, you know, 12, 13. And then I went to high school at 64th and Stony. So like I what may have high missed- school? What high school did you go to? Uh, Mount Carmel. Okay. 
So that's, you know, that's from when you go to high school when you're what, 14. So that's 14 to 18. So I was from birth to nine and then all over the South side from nine to 13, 14. And then you're in the city Monday through Friday, every day, nine months out of the year. And you just get that culture because it's, you know, I think at one point they said that high school had 200 zip codes wow. going to that school every single day. And they stretched as far North as, you know, the border and as far as I think there was one kid that came from Valparaiso every day and everything in between. And we had, I mean, I'm telling you that, that place was a freaking melting pot. I mean, I would say it was probably about 60% white, 25% black. And then like maybe 15% Hispanic. So, I mean, you had like, it was just like the lunchroom was, was just full of people from all walks of life. And that, you know, going to that, going to a place like that, you know, others went to St. Rita, Brother Rice, you know, there are some schools on the North side that have the all boys high school, but uh, definitely an experience. Oh, do you not like girls? No, that's not it. We, we all, well, I should right. say we all like girls, but I think it was, it was definitely an experience. And then if you could, if you can make friends at a place, you know, nobody for four years, like I knew two people going in and then left knowing hundreds, that's like going to college before going to college. Because most people, you know, barring a move or whatever, they go to school with the same people from six to 18 and then go to college. And then they hang out with, you know, on the weekends, they go home or their friends from high school come to college. And like, I just went and I went to college at 13, the way I look at it, and then yeah. went to college again at 18. And uh, yeah, it was, it was definitely an interesting, uh, an interesting track from from birth to 18 in that city, but I, I miss it. I do miss it. I miss living there. Well, do you live in the city of Boston now? Yeah, we're pretty much in downtown Boston, but it's, um, it's a lot different. I mean, there are some similarities for sure. I think there's an attitude here like there is back home. <laughs> I think there's more of an edge in Boston, if that makes any sense. Like the people are somewhere. There. I was just there like a few months ago. So what do you, uh, like, what's the edge? I don't know. It's just like this, it's this hard headed, approach this blue collar approach a lot of chicagoans have it especially if you hang on hang out in the uh, neighborhoods that i hung out in with a lot of uh police and firemen uh and their kids um it's just a i don't know it's not a bad thing like i, I appreciate the edge like there's there's some there's camaraderie but there's also like there's conflict there like you know it's a good thing it's not i don't mean that in a negative way because there's certainly there's an edge to chicagoans i mean it's not like living in los angeles or living in you know, Miami or whatever, but I think it's, it's that work ethic. It's the, it's the ability to um, adapt to different situations. And it's that hard headed approach to life. Like, Hey, I'm going to go to work. I'm going to do my job. And then after that, you know, I'm going to live my life, but we're going to take care of business first and foremost. Yeah. Now this is very interesting because I've taught on the South side. I even have a pin to show, to prove it um, on the Southwest side for 15 years. I mean, right now I'm subbing at daily college, and I love the South side. I mean, I love the people. Um, I met such great people and even people I meet who I get along with, I'll say they won't be from the South side and from the city, but I'll say, where are you from? And they'll name some Southern suburb or some Southwest suburb. I just really, and the fact that you actually were there, you're not just saying South side because some people say South side, but it's actually a suburb. It just really bothers me. I actually wrote a blog post about it, but Maybe that's why um, you're very personable, because I know the north side's more interesting, like we have more um, cafes, restaurants, et cetera. But south side people are so on the level. And 
like up on the north side, people might say like, oh, I'm so, you know, blunt or whatever. And I'm on the south side. I'm like, I'm so bougie. So I can't, I can't win either way, but. No, I feel like, you know how it is. I try, I keep, for, unfortunately, I keep it real sometimes too much, but that's, I mean, that's how I grew up and that's how my friends, that's how we all talk to each other. That's yeah. how our teachers talked to us in high school. That's how, you know, that's just how it was. Yeah, so, and that's, and, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I, yeah. you know. If I see somebody that I don't like and somebody asks me, you know, like, hey, what do you think about that person? I'm going to tell you the truth. Like, I'm not going to say, oh, well, he's a good guy. Like, no, that guy sucks. Right. You know, stay away from him. And and you and I, you know, we have some people that I know we we feel the same about. But uh, to your point about, you know, the whole Chicago thing. Yeah. I mean, it always used to kill me when um, be down at U of I, you know, I went to college down there. I started college down there and you'd meet people out and you'd go, where are you from? Cause I was always, you know, like, where are you from? That was a, a very yeah. easy conversation starter at a college in the middle of nowhere. And it was, Oh, Chicago. Oh, what part? Naperville. I'm like, exactly. this is not Chicago at yes. all. You're listening to the radio girl podcast with Margaret Larkin. And thanks to Jeff Davis, who's at jeffdavis.com. And finally, I'm going to have a book launch event, which I couldn't have before because of the pandemic. I will be at The Empty Bottle on October 22nd at 5 p.m. with authors Andy Fry and Jeff Winkowski. All of us wrote books about the 90s. But also, okay, let's go back to Boston for a second. Yeah, you say it's like blue collar, but when I was there... I was near Beacon. I was on, I was actually in Beacon Hill, but there's also a large part of Boston that's actually pretty well off. Like it's not necessarily blue collar. It's very proper. And well, I, mean, I can tell you, you Beacon side? Hill is like the fanciest neighborhood in Boston proper. So that is your fault, not yeah, their fault. Uh, My cousin there are, lives there. I have a cousin there. There are, well, congrats to your cousin for being successful. <laughs> um, there are, but there are, you know, it, it's, it's not like Chicago where, you know, like say you go to Sox Park and I, I'm sorry, I keep calling it Sox Park because I refuse to call it anything else. But if you go like drop a pin on 35th and Shields and go in the five blocks to the north, like go to 31st Street and then go five blocks the other way. And it's two completely different neighborhoods, two completely different sets of people. Two completely different everything. And that, you know, Chicago is very diverse, but it's also very segregated yeah. at the same time. Like if you go a mile east or west from somewhere or north of or north and south of somewhere, it's completely different. And you could even go like drop a pin on, you know, division in Halstead and go two miles west, two miles north, two miles south and two miles east. And it's you just have like such differentiating neighborhoods and types of people and, and and things like that but in boston boston is very crunched together it's not spread out like chicago is and i i think you know proper boston yes it's it's affluent i guess um you know the the financial district the downtown area where i live sort of by the boston garden or the td garden excuse me had a cab driver correct me the other day i'm like i know where i live thank you you live near uh, there wow that's neat well, I said Boston Garden, and he was like, uh, it's the TD Garden. I'm like, relax. Um, but Boston is so small. Like you can walk from the northernmost part of Boston to the southernmost part of Boston in about an hour and 15 minutes. Yeah. To walk from, like, Andersonville to Hegwish is going to take you a day and a half. Oh, so yeah. that's how spread out Chicago is compared to where uh it, it looks like in boston but I'll, and also, I'll chicago what, has wide, also chicago has wider sidewalks and we have more space and it's also a perfect grid 
Chicago is a perfect square grid where the streets go like this and like this. Well, some are slanted, like Milwaukee and so forth. Well, okay, you pick like four streets out of two million. But in in Boston, <laughs> like, like yeah. if if the if you need to go from here to it's here. here like top left to bottom right, you have to go, like you're yeah. going like all over the city. You're going around your ass to get to your elbow. Yeah. If that makes any sense. And if you miss a turn in Boston, like if you miss a turn in Chicago, you just make a turn at the next block or the, or the second block if there's a one-way system. If you miss a turn in Boston, you're never going home. You're 30 that's minutes true. away. That's true. So that's, yeah, that's the big difference between- And you get the, shin splints on the way. Yes, you do. But I'll tell you what, Chicago cannot compete with the combination of fresh seafood, jammed inside pasta, covered in sauce. Yum. I, I will die on this hill. The combination of like lobster ravioli, crab linguine, shrimp scallops risotto. Like you just, you can't find the combination of fresh seafood and homemade pasta covered in whatever sauce you want. Chicago does a lot of things well, but they can't touch Boston's seafood pasta, I promise. Wait, I so said you let's just let's go back to your career because so I talked to you you were on the radio and you're also on TV on NBC Sports and then you popped up on my Twitter feed being on TV on the East Coast. But like what was your trajectory? Ooh. Um I mean, it's, it's not like anybody's trajectory that, that has ever done this because it's, and that's not to brag. It's just like, I think it's a lesson that nobody's path is the same in media. Um, you know, I got out of college at 23, interned a whole lot, got a job as a part-time producer reporter, slowly moved up to an anchor and then a part-time host. And then I decided, look, I want to host more and it's not going to happen in Chicago where they just recycle every white male until the end of time. So I said, all right, I'm going to try something different. I'm going to go to Las Vegas where, you know, there were some friends that were at the Tribute Company that had started a business out in Las Vegas to do sports betting radio, which at the time was you know, nobody else was doing it. And and I said, sorry, well, well, sorry to interrupt, but were you always betting into betting? No, I mean, okay. it probably started it probably started at about 13, 14 when I used to read okay. the newspaper and read the the odds peck, uh, odd section of the uh, Sun-Times sports page and asked the right questions and, you know, had some uncles or whatever that knew what they were talking about. And then, you know, kids were gambling in high school for sure. But I, you know, I, I started to cover it, um, you know, as a part-time thing. I did a podcast with a guy from the score called chicken dinner. And we started that in 2016 and we had a lot of fun with it. Like it was the most fun of my day. You know, I cover sports or do a show or whatever, but then doing that podcast for 40 minutes uh, with Joe Ostrowski was like the most fun because we were talking about our hobby. And I pretty much turned a hobby into a career in some weird way. So uh, the Vegas Sports and Information Network, which is run by the Musburgers, and Bill Eighty is an executive there. I'm sure you know that name uh, from the Tribune days. Wait, Bill Eighty? Yeah, Bill Eighty. But Musburgers, like, as in the sports guy? Yeah, yeah. Brent Musburger's family is—they're uh, wow. the ones that uh, that founded that network. So, um, and then Bill was an executive there. I think he's the COO still to this day. And they were looking for more people to join their network. And they're like, well, this kid's from Chicago. He knows what he's talking about. He knows sports. Let's give him a shot. And I ended up going there. And within three months, I was hosting every day. Like, well, not every day, but five days a week, kind of split days. And then put in my time there, moved back to Chicago. Um, 
And the boss that I had met in Vegas ended up moving to Boston. And as I told you earlier, he says, Hey, I'm going to bring you to Boston one day. And May or no March of 2020, he was about to bring me to Boston and then COVID happened. Mm -hmm. So I didn't go to Boston. In fact, I had to stay in Chicago and do nothing like most of us did. Uh, but I finally got here in December, 2020, but it went from, you know, college to the internships, to uh, raising up that Chicago ladder, to taking a chance to go somewhere else, um, proving that I could hang. And then, you know, just a dream job opportunity coming here to Neston and now, you know, being one of the hosts for our sports betting show. Um, you know, if I don't take that plunge and go to Vegas, I don't come here. So in some weird way, like leaving Chicago gets me to Boston and then who knows what happens in five, 10 years. I love it here for sure. But, you know, home is always going to be home. So we'll see what happens in the future. But that's sort of the Cliff Notes version of, you know, getting from college to Chicago media in Las Vegas and walking into a casino every day for work and then moving out to Boston after the pandemic. It's been it's been a wild ride. And uh, I don't I don't know what's next, but I don't think I want to know what's next. Like, I'm excited to to find out on the fly. Well, and also, you know what your specialty is because you've already, you know, you've obviously found a niche and you started, like you said, you started in your free time and now you're getting paid for it. But what's it like to be on TV? How do you do TV? <laughs> do you wear low cut dresses and stuff? I, I mean, yes, I usually six inch heels as well. And I just parade around the studio. Um, it's, you know, it's a lot different than radio because I remember in radio, we used to do, we used to make rundowns, right? And we used to do all right, like from, eight to 808. Here's the topic. Here are some bullet points. And then, you know, go to commercial. And we do this for the next, you know, 50 minutes or so. And then if you have an hour show, you're done. If you have a three hour show, you get two more hours to fill. But it was very unscripted. My TV life is a little different, though, because I come from that radio life where I don't need to type out my entire script. Like I can host a radio show with just some bullet points and some flashcards or whatever. So, you know, I don't host the show. I'm basically an analyst on the show. So our host, Travis, will, you know, we have a producer that will put all the ideas together and we have four segments, A, B, C, and D block. But we sort of build the rundown together around the content and the conversations we want to have. But I don't go out there with like a script or anything because we're really like, I think TV is supposed to be at its core. It's supposed to be entertaining. Like the hosts are supposed to look like they're having fun and they like each other. And by all accounts, that's what our show has been uh, for the first two months. I say that like a very proud father. Well, let's see. No, it started, yeah, May 16th. So it hasn't even been two full months yet, but we have our morning meetings. We go through, you know, the topics of the day. Like today was Chris Sales' uh, first start for the Red Sox, former White Sox pitcher Chris Sale, like he made his debut today. So the first segment we were talking about Chris Sale and all the different ways you can bet on Chris Sale. How many hits will he give up? How many strikeouts? How long will he go in the game? Will the Red Sox win the game? Yada, yada. And then we sort of build the show around the topics of the day or the topics of the weekend, uh, depending on what time of year it is. You know, football writes itself because we're talking about football. But um, at this time of the year, it's mostly baseball because no hockey, no basketball and no football. So we're getting creative and we're trying to find ways to, you know, entertain our audience uh, while also informing them on the bets they can make, why they should make these certain bets, and then sort of educate 
why lines are what they are and how they move and what affects the market. So it's really, you know, it's, it's a market that never sleeps. You know, the stock market opens at X, closes at Y, Monday through Friday. Uh, the sports betting market doesn't sleep. It's open 24-7, 365. Um, and like tonight's lines are done, and now we're on to tomorrow. And the lines are already moving for the Wednesday baseball games. And during football season, the games are on Sunday, but those lines open up the Sunday before, and they move throughout the week, and things are up and down. And it's it's basically the stock market for sports, only instead of stocks and companies – you have players and teams. And our job is to speak about all of these facets of sports and all of these different ways to wager on sports. And we try and help you study for the test because odds are good. You have a nine to five job or you have a 10 to six job or an eight to four job. And you can't study these bets because you have a real job and you have things going on. So our job is to help get you to make informed bets, to make you a better sports better. It's essentially like we are the Bloomberg for sports betting, if you will. And that's our job. And we're trying to cram that into a show that balances entertainment at the top with the information and the education. I'm making it sound very simple. It's not this simple, but it's that's how I view it, at least. Well, how do you get how do you learn all this information in order to make informed opinions? You have to hang out in alleys for six years of your life, right. basically. Yeah. Um, no, I, I don't even know how to answer that. I mean, it's like being a sponge, you know? I mean, you learn a lot, um, learn a lot living in Las Vegas, that's for sure. I mean, I, I networked with probably eight or 10 of the best sports bookers in Las Vegas. You know, the guys who have been taking bets for years, 10, 20, 30 years and picking their brains and asking them why things are and why things move and all that. And then, you know, you're able to track betting lines, but I don't know. There's no, like, there's no study guide. There's no, you know, Bible for like how to learn how to sports bet. It's a lot of trial and error. And I think a lot of the people that bet for a living, and I'm not one of them because I, I can't bet every day. It's, it's, it's an emotional roller coaster. Mm -hmm. Being wrong a lot is hard. If you didn't know that, because we are wrong a lot. We're wrong about you know, I'd like to be right 55% of the time, which means I'm wrong 45% of the time. And that's maddening because being wrong sucks. But I think it's a lot of learning from losses, learning why you lost and learning from bad habits. That it's, it's a lot of trial and error. It's learning from the mistakes you've made and that's how you become a better sports better. Okay, but see, the, okay, for the stock market, for instance, like we know that the stock market is down because of the war. And then also there are other, you know, world events that affect the stock market. But with sports, I mean, you could have a good player and then he gets injured. I mean, there are these random, you're dealing with human beings. So it seems to me like it'd be difficult to predict the outcome when you deal with all these variables in a game. Yeah. And then if a player gets hurt, say he gets hurt on a Thursday, like an Aaron Rodgers, for example, the Packers quarterback, you know, odds makers tell me he's worth about eight points to the point spread. So if the Packers are an 11 point favorite on a Thursday, say they're playing the Lions in Green Bay and Aaron Rodgers news comes out on Friday that he's out. That line goes from Green Bay minus 11 to Green Bay minus three. And then the questions I get, do I still bet Green Bay or now do I bet Detroit? And what's, what is the backup going to do? And I, I don't know. I have no idea what he's going to do because we never see him play. Right. You know, Aaron Rodgers plays, you know, 16, 17 games a year going back, you know, 10 years. He got hurt a couple of times, but 
you know, we don't know some of these things. So we have to sort of, you know, a thing like that is though, like everybody's going to bet the other side with Aaron Rodgers being out. So it almost makes like, it's a buy low on green Bay because now Margaret, I had to lay 11 on Thursday. So the Packers had to win by 12 or more, but now without Rodgers, the Packers are still a pretty good team and they only have to win by four. So do you want to be late to the Lions at plus four, or do you want to lay the Packers at minus four? And I think these are the conversations that we have on our show. Like, what is the right bet? If there is a bet, we can, we don't have to bet it, but we can explain how it moved, why it moved, what it means, and what to expect from the absence of Rodgers and the insertion from this guy that you probably couldn't pick out of a lineup. Yeah. And also didn't at one time, he wasn't uh, there an idea floating that he was going to retire. He said he was going to retire. And then the odds were a certain way and they're like, Oh wait, no, he's not retiring. Wait, hold on. Hold on. And people already put money down. And yeah, there was a whole ordeal last summer. He was pretty, uh, pretty much holding the team hostage. You know, he said, uh, you know, he had told people close to green Bay, he was never going to play again. He had made up his mind. And then all of a sudden he had this epiphany where he was going to come back for one more year and that year happened and it looks like there's going to be more years. So I just, I just don't believe anybody anymore, I guess is what we're getting at. Like, just let me know who's going to play, you know, on Friday or Saturday, let me know who's out there. I can assess from there, but yeah, that was a, a very weird situation last year where we didn't think Aaron Rodgers would ever play again. And now it looks like he's going to play another season off the last season that was supposed to be the last season. I confused myself with that guy. Well, okay. also earlier, I was asking you about TV and, you, you know, obviously you have a lot of um, experience with radio, but how has radio helped your TV? I am willing to try things on the fly. I am, you know, so used to, all right, hey, we don't have this cut or we don't have this tape or whatever. We have this thing we were going to play this five minutes. All right, we don't have that. All right, let's go to the phones. So I think it's the ability. And I remember I did play by play as well. Uh, for college baseball, college basketball. So I think the spontaneity of, you know, like, how do you call a grand slam? I don't know. I don't know until it happens. Well, what do I do when the phones are out and the tape is out? Like, how do I adapt? I think the adaptability of radio has been the most important thing of my broadcast at, at this point in time. Like, if I were to take one thing that I think I cherish the most, most, it's the ability to adapt or troubleshoot or sort of go off the cuff and not rely on a piece of information or a piece of tape or a phone call um, just to be able to fill without having any clue of where I'm going. Um, you know, you have to, you have to make words come out. Um, so I, I don't freeze. I knock on wood, at least at this point, I don't freeze because I can always pivot and I learn how to pivot working in radio, whether it be as a producer a reporter, an anchor, or a host, you have to know where to go next if all things go to hell. And you don't really learn that until you're in radio. Like radio was so good for learning how to make nothing or make something out of nothing rather. Yeah. And then also um, when you are on, well, first of all, how long is your show? Half hour. That's it. Okay. And so when you're on, what's up with the uh, teleprompters? Is that a thing now still? Or Prompters are still a thing. Yes. Like I told you, I don't put anything on the prompter. Maybe a, a quick nugget here and there, but the host will put, you know, the, whoever's driving the ship, the host will, 
have the script in the prompter. And yes, prompter's still a thing, still operated by a person, mind you, not a robot, because the robots will eventually rule the world, or so I'm told. But yeah, prompter's still a thing. Uh, you've got the crew with the cameras, you've got the, uh, the prompter, you've got the lighting crew, you've got the directors and the producers and the PAs and all that. It's, it probably takes, let's see, we have three hosts on the set, and those are the only people you see. But we have 10 people working on the show on a given day behind the scenes. So it takes a it takes a village to get a show on the air. And there are so many people that are important to our TV show. And uh, yeah, it's about 13, you know, counting the three hosts. It's about 13 people putting all of these things together to make three people look like they know what they're talking about. But it's it's a family affair. That's for sure. Well, it's interesting because a long, a while ago, I interviewed a sports guy in, in uh, St. Louis and I went to a TV station. So he was, um, he did some TV appearances, but he was basically a radio guy. And I went to a TV station in St. Louis and this one guy who was a veteran, he pointed to this room and he said, this used to all be full. And now it's like me and just this one other person. So I think it depends where you are. Cause sometimes it is a group of people and sometimes it's just a couple of people. I would hate to be working on a TV show with only one person behind the scenes. That would be a problem. Um, but then again, I guess things are better in Boston than they are in St. Louis. <laughs> you said only one person on the crew. Yeah. He was saying, yeah, essentially I think, um, cause there are robots out there. So he was saying like, I used to have all these different producers and stuff and now there's this, this one person. Yeah. But Oof. I don't want to, I don't want to say too much because it was sort of like not necessarily official information, but it sounds but, like you're saying the robots are coming from my job. Well, no, I mean, no, 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 not that. But I think um, I think in some cases, cameras are operated by robots because I've seen that at some smaller stations where there's a guy in a booth and he's controlling the cameras. It's not the guys at the, the camera itself. We have some robotic cameras, but we our main camera or two are still operated by, you know, a union employee and all that. So, yeah, I mean, we have we have several crew members. I mean, maybe things are better here than they are in most places. And if that's the case, hell yeah. Well, but also it's because you're also sports because you're working. At, it sounds like you're working at a great place. I mean, I, first of all, I love New England. So and of course, they have such great teams. And actually, um, I am currently reading um, the memoir or read the book by um, Nick Falls. And he talks about, you know, Nick, I, I don't know if uh, people if he's a hugely popular, but he does describe um, his experience in football and eventually, you know, helping the Eagles win. So. that that is not going to throw me off because i am not a patriots fan but i know if you brought up the name nick Foles in this newsroom to my right right, um that would not be pretty because some people still aren't over that super bowl between the eagles and pats yeah i'm sure (laughs) okay so is there anything else you'd like to say because you know in this little update that we're doing is there anything like eight years later yeah because i last talked to you and I cannot believe you are not stuck up. Okay. I just want to say that for record. Cause I have seen people around the city who I knew back then, you know, back when, and they are just like, not uh simpatico, simpatico. Do they, so. do they ignore you? I've had some interesting experiences, but they pretend like they don't know me or whatever. But yeah, that's why, that's what I'm saying is like one time I, I texted or I, I Twittered you tweeted, um, sent a message to you. And then the way you responded, I thought, wow, this guy's sort of cool. And of course, you're willing to do this, even though you're like a big TV star in the in New England. So first of all, not a big TV <laughs> star. Second of all, don't inflate my tires. Nobody needs that. I will say this. But are you also I, on Fox Sports? Maybe I am a star. I don't know. Well, Fox Sports is a big deal, too. <laughs> I'm not a TV star. Cut <laughs> it. But let me just say this. I remember the way I remember the way I was treated when I was 22, 23 
by some people and there's no need to name names. But I remember thinking to myself at that time, and you know, I, when I grew up, I never wanted to be a radio person or a TV person. I wanted to do something around sports. I didn't know what it was. And, you know, I just happened to get lucky and do the right things at the right time and, and make it to Nesson and, and Fox and all that. But I think the way you treat people, and that's not just me being somebody who talks about sports and betting, the way you treat people matters like more than anything. And I remember like, just the way people used to disrespect their producers and their interns. Oh, yeah. And I, I just hated Preach. that shit. Oh, my I hated gosh. that shit. Oh, my you know? gosh. Yes. And, and I used to see it from oh. people that I knew had a persona because people would always say, what's it like to work with right. so-and-so? He or right. she must be great. Right. And I'd be like, he's kind of a dick, you know? And like, and they go, oh, no way. And, well, yeah, well, because the people you see on TV – for five, 10, 30, 60 minutes at a time, that's oftentimes that's who they are on camera and not who they are off camera. And I always, I always told myself, and this is not, I'm not making this up. I always told myself, I'm going to be the same person off that I am on. And I'm going to respect people that I work with because I remember what it was and what it was like to work with people that you just couldn't stand and they just like talked down to you and barked orders to you and disrespected you. And I never liked that. And I, and I never wanted to do that. Well, then there's also the added, it's not just that it's also the added, like they create clicks. And then if you're in the click, you things, you know, uh, doors open. If you're not in the click doors don't. And I, I filed away that, that stuff away too. I can't speak. I also filed that stuff away. Go ahead. Go ahead. So I just, yeah, I just didn't want to be somebody that, you know, cause if you lose the crew, you lose everything. You know, if the people that you work with don't like you and don't respect you, that show or that faction of your career is going to suffer. Yeah. So I have always been a very familial type person, a very friendly person. Uh, I got my, uh, what do they call it? Predictive index back that I took when I started here and they told me in the social category, I was in the 99.9% tile or whatever. Wow. I guess they're like, we've never seen anything like this here. Like you're the most social employee we've ever had. Wait, I'm how like, did they what? do that? Wait, what do you mean? I, like they, it's, like a, they... it's like a 50 question quiz about like you. It's like a personality okay. quiz. Okay. And they, they rank how you test and all that. And they were like, you are in the 99.9 percentile of social humans. And I was wow. like, oh, cool. Um, so like, I just, I like to get along with people and I like to hang out with people and we, we go out after work, we hang out, we drink, we eat, whatever. But I, I never wanted anybody that worked with me when I got here to just loathe working with me. But that comes from being treated, you know, like just a number, you know, I remember I would enter for somebody for six months, didn't know my name. Like, how is that? How is that a thing? So I just never forgot what it was like back then. And I just pay that all forward into the job now. So just treat people with respect and be nice to people. It's not that hard. Now, okay. One question is like, what if you pay it forward and you're helping somebody and then they clips you or they end up getting your job, not because they're doing devious stuff, but do you ever think about that? I already asked somebody else this in another live stream. So what do you no, think about no. that? Okay. I'm not worried about, no, I'm not worried about people, that. Cause some people act that way because they're worried about possible competition. I think competition is good. If anything, you know, I compete, well, not compete because compete's the wrong word, but we 
you know, there are three betting hosts at Nesson and we don't compete with each other, but it is like, it's not like I need to pick all these games, right? I hope you get all these games wrong, but look, when, when Claudia gets three games, right? Like I want to get three games, right. You know what I mean? So it's a healthy competition, but you know, competition is good. Like, you know, if you're going back to, you know, playing high school sports or whatever, like we didn't want to play bad teams all season because then when you get to the playoffs, you're going to lay an egg against a good team. So I, I think the best bring out the best and that could be producers, directors, content people, hosts, co-hosts. Like I, I have no issue uh, with competition and I don't look, if I lose my job because I'm being nice to somebody, I, I just, I can't even imagine that. Like I could see it the other way where if I treat people with disrespect and I don't like people and I, I'm a curmudgeon at work, like that's how I get heaved. So I'd rather go down the nice guy than go down the bad guy. Yeah, because there are some media people who it's called, you know, like it's like they pull up the ladder, like they get some kind of uh, success and they pull up the ladder because they don't want other people, whatever. It's, you know, I've just been in it for a while. So whatever. It's a lot of drama, but it it's is. sort of. But I have to I, I recently did a live stream with somebody and he did work with some literally successful Hollywood people. And he said they were so great because they basically talked to everybody like, hey, how's it going? Even if you're a minor character in their show. So it says a lot, you know, when people are like that, they take the time to get to know people. I think I know everybody's name here. That's good. Now, any other um, any other things you want to discuss, like any other advice or anything or any insight or anything? Any more advice? I don't I think I'm out of time on advice. Yeah, see, I, I know you got to go to your yeah, you got to go to the bar or whatever. Do no, what the, I, no, I don't have to go to the <laughs> bar. I do have I do have more work to do. But no, I mean, I, I feel like if, if there's anything that you missed, just just go back that. uh Go back to the beginning. I mean, I've tried to sprinkle some things along this uh, this conversation, and you know, I you know, back to the point about you know working hard, uh, meeting people, remembering people. It's a huge deal, but also just being compassionate. And you know, I saw this quote the other day. It was something like, you know, you never know when the person next to you is about to fall apart. Just be nice to them, and that like you don't know, like you don't know, like people I work with, people that I interact with, like, okay, they, they put on a front at work or whatever, but you don't know what they're going on. They're right. going through at home. So just, just give people the benefit of the doubt, be nice to people, you know, have a heart. Will you like that's, it's not hard to do that. Like this world, this world at times is very tough. Life is way too short. And uh, it's just, it, it's easier when, you share the respect that you want to receive the other way. And it's, I mean, it's that simple. Like I sound like a broken record, but yeah, you know, you reach out to me and say, Hey, like, would love you to come on my show. Absolutely. <laughs> because well, we yeah. have a relationship. We go back, you know, we're friends. Yeah. And then also, um, yeah. And the next time in Boston, I'm going to call you up and you can come to the fancy area. We stay in a hotel, but then next <laughs> I'm going to stay with my cousin. Cause he lives in the same neighborhood, fancy neighborhood. But I was going to say also, um, yeah, I did interrupt you earlier about the bulls locker room. Um, anything else you'd like to share about that? <laughs> Cause you talked earlier about, it and I interrupted you. <laughs> Just joking. Noah yeah. being one of the most, <clears throat> being one of the most unique human beings, you could ever be around. I mean, just the smile that lights up a room, the the camaraderie that he had. And I remember that's a kid who was like very lowly recruited his sophomore junior year out of high school. So had a chip on his shoulder and just wanted to bring this baby bull team on the map with a young Derek Rose and a young Luol Dang and being around Joe, you know, he's got all these causes in the city, the rock, your drop. 
He's very good in the inner city. He's got these foundations. And, and that was just a guy that she like gravitated toward. Like, you know, that, that he's a good guy and basketball for him. <clears throat> yeah. It's a job, but it, it's his passion, but he's passionate about so many other things like culture and music and food and, and family and neighborhoods and all that. And he was just a very complex guy. And he was the heartbeat of that locker room. And it was a very good group to be around. I mean, he was, you know, if I had to make a Mount Rushmore of guys that that I got to cover, that I love being around, it's Jonathan Taves, it's Joakim Noah, it is Anthony Rizzo, and it's probably hmm, who's the fourth? It's not a bear because I didn't cover any good <laughs> bears. Right. Rizzo, Taves. Who's my fourth? I should know this. I just I set this up and totally blew it. Yeah. No, but I can ask I can ask you something else because while you're thinking about that, but um, with the locker room, back to the locker room thing, I know we're going full circle. Um, they, okay, the guys who light up the locker room, is it that they're encouraging and joking around with their other people there? They're just not sticking to themselves or, because I just think of locker rooms like guys in towels um, and having fun with each other or whatever, giving each other a hard time. That's what you imagine the locker room. No, that is not, <laughs> it's just, it's holding people accountable. It's knowing what to say. Uh, but again, we don't see everything in the locker rooms. We only see what they let us see. And we go in there, you know, two hours before the game and then 30, 40 minutes after the game. But it's just the you know ability to look you in the eye, win or lose, you know, victory or defeat, you know, answer the questions respectfully and, and that's that. Those were the best locker rooms. But now, did you remember the fourth person? No, I didn't. Let me know what you think. Email me at margaret at radiogirl.us. You can also call or text me at 716-202-TALK. That's 8255. And like the Radio Girl Facebook page. You can find out about who's coming up next, see pictures, listen to audio, and more.